Welcome to the Say the Word podcast, where we'll dig into words and language as tools for curiosity. I'm your host, Cindy Givinoli, and together we're going to explore how language is used in literature, memoir, poetry, and all kinds of fiction and nonfiction to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Here we are, the inaugural episode of season two of the Say the Word podcast. I am really excited about this season. There are some phenomenal works on deck from Joy Harjo's poetry and Ella Molloy's essays to fiction by Tanahisi Coates and Sumunk Kidd and Leah Johnson. If you're new here, welcome. I'm Cindy Giovanoli, and I'm a life and business coach who works primarily with my clients on developing their curiosity skills in order to more quickly and easily stay out of stuckness and judgment and move forward with what matters to them. I do this primarily through utilizing my Say the Word method, and that's a directed journaling process that digs into the language that we use to relate to ourselves, to each other, to tell our stories, and to explore our worlds, our work, and our relationships. Here on the podcast, I do some of that exploring right here beside you. We'll be looking at passages from all kinds of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry as a launching pad for our inquiry. If you'd like to hear a little more about this, I encourage you to reach back to episode one where I talk just a little bit about how this podcast came to be and what my vision for it initially looked like. Now, a little reminder, I am not here as a literary critic. I am not seeking to analyze writing craft or critique the works that we're looking at. I am here to dive in and dig around to celebrate the powerful ways different writers from different places and backgrounds and experiences can capture some part of what it means to be human and to get curious about how what we find in this writing can help each of us peel back the layers in our own lives that are keeping us from living the rich, meaningful, connected lives that we are all meant to be living. So let's move toward today's passage. Okay, you guys, confession time. I resolved when I started this podcast to minimize how often I repeat a writer, especially from a single work. And as such, I had a different passage planned for you today. I had it all queued up and ready to rumble, but this nagging feeling would not leave me alone. Words from today's selection just kept popping into my head at random moments throughout my days, and there's just been this deep pull to share it here. And, you know, since it's my podcast and I made these rules, I figure it's also my prerogative to occasionally break them. So we're beginning this season with another passage from Brian Doyle's incredible essay collection, One Wrong, One Long River of Song. Okay, so this is a prime hashtag sorry not sorry kind of moment because there's simply no room for sheepish regret when I am this excited 
And I will warn you now, I am already playing with the idea of opening season three with one of his as well. So go ahead and prepare yourself. So let's dive in. This essay is pretty short, so I am indulging myself and reading the whole dang thing. It's entitled Illuminos, and it's by Brian Doyle from his collection, One Long River of Song. One child held on to my left pinky finger everywhere we went. Never any other finger, and never the right pinky, but only the left pinky, and never my whole hand. My finger misses her hand this morning. It has been many years since she held my finger. To this day, sometimes in the morning when I dress, I stare at my left pinky, and suddenly I am in the playground, or on the beach, or in a thrumming crowd, and there is a person weighing 40 pounds holding on to my left pinky so tightly that I am tacking slightly to port. I miss tacking slightly to port. Another child held on to my left trouser leg most of the time, but he would, if he deemed it necessary, hold either of my hands, and one time both of my hands, when we were shuffling in the surf, and the water was up to my knees but up to his waist, and I walked along, towing him like a small, grinning, chortling dinghy, all the way from the sea cave where we thought there might be sea lions sleeping off a salmon bender to the tide pools where you could find starfish and crabs and anemones and mussels the size of your shoes. The third child held hands happily all the time, either hand, any hand, my hands, his mother's hands, his brother's hands, his sister's hands, his friends, aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and teachers, dogs and trees, neighbors and bushes, he would hold hands with any living creature whatsoever, without the slightest trepidation or self-consciousness. And to this day, I admire that boy's open, genuine, eager, unadorned verve. He once held hands with his best friend during an entire soccer game when they were five years old, the two of them running in tandem or one starting in one direction unbeknownst to the other, and down they both went giggling in the sprawl of the grass. It seems to me that angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere, available for consultation if only we can see them clear. They are unadorned and joyous and patient and radiant and luminous and not disguised or hidden or filtered in any way whatsoever, so that if you see them clearly, which happens occasionally even to the most blinkered and frightened of us, you realize immediately who they are beings of great and humble illumination dressed in the skins of new and dewy beings. And you realize, with a catch in your throat, that they are your teachers, and they are agents of an unimaginable love, and they are your cousins and companions in awe, and they are miracles and prayers and songs of inexplicable beauty whom no one can explain and no one own or claim or trammel, and that simply to perceive them is to be blessed beyond the reach of language, and that to be the one appointed to tow them along a beach or a crowd or home through the brilliant morning from the muddy, hilarious peewee soccer game is to be graced beyond measure or understanding, which is what I was, and I am, and I will be, until the day I die and change form from this one to another in ways miraculous and mysterious, never to be plumbed by the mind or measures of man." I love his work so much. 
Okay, so there are a few ideas that I want to work with here, but really they all circle back to my biggest takeaway from this piece. I'm going to jump to the last paragraph and to where he says, it seems to me that angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere available for consultation if only we can see them clear. They are unadorned and joyous and patient and radiant and luminous and not disguised or hidden or filtered in any way whatsoever. And the sentence goes on to say more than I want to touch on, but I just want to stop here and look right at this part of it. Angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere available for consultation if only we can see them clear. This is so rich. Okay, so breaking it down even further, let's look at the first part of this. Angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere. What is he saying here? What does he mean by angels and bodhisattvas? Now, I mean, I'm just going to go with the very simplest terms here and say that he means great teachers, specifically great spiritually enlightened teachers. And he says that it seems to him that they are everywhere. I could not agree more. Now, in this essay, he's centering this idea primarily around his children, but I think it applies on a far wider scale as well. I mean, where else do we find such teachers? I mean, as I am sitting here right now recording this, my dog, Chili, Chili Pepper Pie, Chili Bob, Chili, is sleeping on his bed in my office. He has so unabashedly made himself comfortable. He is sprawled on his back, legs wide as he sticks straight up, tongue lolling. And I learn from him daily. This isn't new. People talk about this all the time. But, you know, like any animal, I suppose, he lives so entirely in the present moment of his life. Whatever he is doing is what he is doing, and that's that. And the result of that means that his days are full of all sorts of unexpected exuberance, right? I mean, he is truly and sincerely overjoyed at every meal and every belly rub and every return home when we've stepped out. Oh my gosh, don't even get me started on tennis balls or sticks. I mean, it's a lesson in itself to watch him give himself over so utterly and fully to every single stick throw. No matter how tired or how many times we've thrown it, he comes at every single one with the same entirety of himself. Gives 100% focus and 100% effort every single time. And the greetings when we get home after being away, whether for days or mere minutes, the full body wag and completely embodied joy of togetherness is, you know, the hallmark of why so many of us have dogs or other pets in our lives anyway, right? So what does it look like if I apply the teachings of Chile to my life? What if I allowed myself to keep some part of each moment for itself, to allow satisfaction for that singular moment to trickle in, to allow some genuine enthusiasm for even the most mundane parts of my daily life? What if I approach the things that mattered most to me with the same complete engagement that he gives to every single throw of a stick? What if I greeted my loved ones with a kind of affection and love and joy 
that I let permeate every cell of my body, and I also let them know it? What if I did it every single time I saw them? What if I included the people closest to me, the ones I share a living space with, the ones I see every single day? Chili does not care that he greeted me with this level of joy yesterday or earlier today. He's thrilled in this moment that I'm with him, that I'm here. Also from this space where I am sitting at my desk, I can see this massive cedar tree that grows in the yard. What lessons do we learn from a tree? I mean, all the cliches about learning to bend in the wind, well, maybe they're cliches for a reason. There's no way this tree could have grown to this size without a little flexibility, right? And what about the symbiotic relationships that it shares with the many birds and squirrels and insects and even other plant life, the mosses that hang from its bark and the ferns that grow in its shade? What lessons can I learn there about how to build a full and engaged life, even amidst sometimes messy entanglements? And, you know, those are just two great teachers that I can see right where I'm sitting at this desk right now. What about the people in our lives? How do they teach us? What about the world out there and what we find in ourselves? Maybe you have kids and, like Doyle in this essay, find them to be beings of great and humble illumination dressed in the skins of new and dewy beings. I don't have children of my own, but I certainly feel this way as I watch the kids that I'm close to in my life exist and grow and move through the world around them. I think of what I learn each day from my husband, both from him directly because he's one of the very best people I've ever known, and also from observing myself in relation to him. What old stories or coping mechanisms can pop up occasionally, or how he can pull the qualities that I'm most proud of in myself forward. Friends, neighbors, Colleagues, how do the people in our lives show up as teachers all around us each day? What can we learn from the so-called weeds that thrive in the cracks of our city sidewalks? What can we learn from rivers that carve great canyons? What can we learn from the song that comes on the radio and knocks the breath out of us at the unexpected wash of memory? Angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere. But this last part of that section is a little bit where the catch is, right? They are everywhere, he says, if only we can see them clear. Uh Uh-oh, this is where things get tricky, right? What does it take to see them amidst our daily comings and goings? How often do we miss both the teachers and the lessons while we cling to, you know, busy Sometimes, or something that I find so fascinating in both this piece and in all of his writing, really, is the way that he comes to this entire section through very specific details of relatively mundane moments from his life, right? He begins the essay by noting the way that each of his children held his hand, how looking at his left pinky can instantly bring to mind his daughter holding that finger so tightly that he tacked slightly to port. 
The memory of one son holding both of his hands at the seashore as he pulled him along like a small, grinning, chortling dinghy. Recalling the other son spending an entire peewee soccer game holding hands with his best friend when he was five years old. And it's these details, these specifics that are what lead him to conclude that he's surrounded by angels and bodhisattvas in the form of these small humans. He didn't come to this conclusion after some pilgrimage in a faraway land, not during a spiritual retreat or spending days locked in prayer or seeking the guidance of some guru or another. I mean, I'm not saying that he never did any of those things because I actually have no idea. And, you know, his personal faith is certainly a big part of his writing. But at the end of the day here, what led him to realize that he was surrounded by angels and bodhisattvas was not some sort of epiphany on a mountaintop, but rather a child holding his left pinky. Or if we dig a little deeper, it was the way he noticed the child holding his left pinky. Because it's not just people and animals and trees that are everywhere offering their wisdom to us. There are infinite moments in every day of our lives that hold themselves out to be seen, to be noticed in just the way he noticed and burned into memory the way each of his three children held his hands. And this is where curiosity comes in, right? We notice what we're interested in. And also, vice versa, we're interested in what we bother to notice. He says in the sentence, they are unadorned and joyous and patient and radiant and luminous and not disguised or hidden or filtered in any way whatsoever. And I think this applies as much to the moments within our daily doings as much as it does to the beings he calls angels and bodhisattvas. One of the very first times I was introduced to the idea of mindfulness many years ago, my friend said that she thought of it in these terms, that even when she needed to hurry or things were urgent in some way, that she didn't have to feel hurried or urgent, even as she moved quickly, that she could calmly accept that this was a moment when she needed to move fast and get where she was going or get done what needed doing. But that mindfulness was how, even within the physical hurry, she could stay peaceful and calm as she moved through the tasks. I really love that. I love the reminder that while practicalities often mean that we can't just stroll through our lives at a meandering pace, that doesn't mean that we can't also marvel at the world as we move through it at whatever pace we need to at any given moment. Do I think that there's often more time and space for us to slow down than we realize in a culture that shouts busy and hustle as values? Sure. But I can't imagine that there aren't too many of us that don't have busier or slightly more hectic days or weeks, even when we've worked to cultivate lives of intention. It happens sometimes. And Brian Doyle here does not say that he noticed his daughter holding his left pinky only in moments of relaxation. He says, and suddenly I am in the playground or on the beach or in a thrumming crowd, and there is a person weighing 40 pounds holding on to my left pinky so tightly that I am tacking slightly to port. I miss tacking slightly to port. I love that. 
When we live lives rooted in curiosity, we are invited to find interest and intrigue right smack in the midst of our regular day-to-day lives. And this is where richness and meaning come from. We can see clearly the magic surrounding us, unadorned and joyous and patient and radiant. Oh, before we move on, I do want to point out that in the middle of that section of sentence, he says, angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere available for consultation, available for consultation. Not that they have every answer, that all of the answers, but that they have something worth considering, something worth taking under consultation, that we can consult with this wisdom as we make our choices about our days and our lives. Like a good friend, these teachers will not straight up tell us what to do, right? Ultimately, we have to take responsibility for our own choices, But they can help us see the widest possible scope of the choices available to us simply by moving through the world as they do, which can also serve as a reminder that the way we move through the world might just open up possibilities for someone we don't even know. When we live as honestly as we can from our struggles to our triumphs, When we course crack the paths we're traveling or we pivot hard when we realize that we're on the wrong ones entirely, we never know who might be also, we might also be granting permission to do the same for themselves. Doyle talks about his son who would hold anyone's hand. He says, the third child held hands happily all the time, either hand, any hand, my hands, his mother's hands, his brother's hands, his sister's hands, his friends, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, teachers, dogs, trees, neighbors, and bushes. He would hold hands with any living creature whatsoever without the slightest trepidation or self-consciousness. And to this day, I admire that boy's open, eager, unadorned verve. Permission granted, right? Now I have two last things I just want to touch on quickly before we wrap up today. First, just for the fun of it, I want to point out for any writers out there that most of this final paragraph, beginning with the section noted earlier, beginning with that it seems to me that angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere, all the way to the very end of the essay is one long, glorious sentence chock full of semicolons and commas. This is likely an editor's nightmare, but... Doyle uses these long winding sentences throughout his essays, and I am madly in love with every single one of them. It creates a sense of beautiful overwhelm, these words that just tumble over each other, piling one on top of the next so that, you know, you can't help but be at least partially buried by the end. Here's the entire sentence beginning to end. It seems to me that angels and bodhisattvas are everywhere available for consultation if only we can see them clear. They are unadorned and joyous and patient and radiant and luminous and not disguised or hidden or filtered in any way whatsoever, so that if you see them clearly, which happens occasionally even to the most blinkered and frightened of us, you realize immediately who they are. Beings of great and humble illumination dressed in the skins of new and dewy beings. And you realize, with a catch in your throat, that they are your teachers and they are agents of an unimaginable love and they are your cousins and companions in awe 
and they are miracles and prayers and songs of inexplicable beauty whom no one can explain and no one own or claim or trammel and that simply to perceive them is to be blessed beyond the reach of language and that to be the one appointed to tow them along a beach or a crowd or home through the brilliant morning from the muddy, hilarious, peewee soccer game is to be graced beyond measure or understanding, which is what I am, what I was, and I am, and I will be, until the day I die and change form from this one to another in ways miraculous and mysterious, never to be plumbed by the mind or measures of man. I mean, isn't that just intense and so fantastic? So begging the forgiveness of any editors out there who are sweating through their shirts right now. But writers, what a reminder to, you know, as the kids like to say, do you, boo? I mean, I'm so grateful that Brian Doyle wrote his sentences as he pleased because they are in all of their wacky run-on glory, an absolute treasured gift in my life. Now, the second thing that I want to touch on before we run out of time, which we're doing quickly here, is where he says that, We realize that they are our cousins and companions in awe and that to be the one appointed to tow them along a beach or a crowd or home is to be graced beyond measure. And in this section of sentence, we're reminded that we are both walking beside these angels and bodhisattvas, partners with all things that share our world and our lives. And also that it is a gift to bear responsibility for caring for and tending to all of these teachers that are everywhere. To approach each of these beings and the beauty and the teachers in our worlds from a place of both partnership and wonder and responsibility for care is yet another way to enrich our lives with purpose and meaning. So how can this look for you? How can we dive into the gift of this caring and connection? How can we wield our curiosity to see these teachers in this bigger way? There are angels and bodhisattvas everywhere available for consultation if only we can see them clear, if we can keep our eyes and our hearts open, if we can lead with our curiosity and notice the teachers and lessons that are all around us unadorned and undisguised and simply waiting for us to take their hand. So again, that's the essay Illuminos by Brian Doyle, and you can find it in his collection One Long River of Song, which of course I'll link in the show notes at cindygivanoli.com backslash podcast. If I got stuck on a desert island and only had three books, this would hands down be among them. It is truly magnificent. So our first listener contribution for season two comes from Kenda L., And she says, I just finished The Sound of a Wild Snail Eating by Elizabeth Tova Bailey. So good. It is a deep read about recovery of self that gets lost in chronic illness. I relate to her observations of time. I've had more than one season in my life of being bedbound and in a wheelchair, and it's amazing how life flies by you without you in it. Even when people are sensitive and conscientious, there's just no way to keep up. Her story is woven into the fabric of the science and discovery of tiny gastropods. Quote, As a snail's world grew more familiar, my own human world became less so. My species was so large, so rushed, and so confusing. I found myself preoccupied with the energy level of my visitors, and I started to observe them in the same detail with which I observed the snail. 
The random way my friends moved around the room astonished me. It was as if they didn't know what to do with their energy. They were so careless with it. There were spontaneous gestures of their arms, the toss of a head, a sudden bend into a full body stretch as if it were nothing at all, or they might comb their fingers unnecessarily through their hair. And Kenda says, I was inspired to find a wild snail and set up a terrarium to observe it in. With a snail as my little mentor and my faith and chosen family to support me, I can keep going no matter how tiny the steps. So I am posting, always remember the snail on my writing desk as a visual reminder that what I do, no matter how slowly or how small, is enough. Kenda, that is so, so powerful. Thank you. Next week, we are diving into an excerpt from Matt Haig's incredible novel, The Midnight Library. So until then, welcome back and be sure to stay curious out there. That's it for this episode of the Say the Word podcast, where we explore how language is used in fiction, nonfiction, and poetry to connect us to what it means to be human and how to use curiosity to peel back the layers of what's keeping us from living the rich, meaningful lives we were always meant to be living. Be sure to share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and I would so appreciate it if you would go ahead and leave a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Cindy Givanoli, and I'll see you next week on Say the Word. Say the Word.